This is the EPLOG audio experience. Film is clearly a sophisticated art, possibly the most important art of the 20th century with a rather complex history of theory and practice, writes James Monaco in his book How to Read a Film. So far in our podcast, The Artists, we have had filmmakers, writers, critics, programmers from some of the top film festivals, musicians, thinkers, defining their combinatorial skills. We at Metaphysical Lab have been striving to expand the realm of our podcast, which in turn gives a wider uh, canvas to the understanding of our experiences. And also we have tied up with Epilog Media, the podcasting network. So you can find us on their website, epilogmedia slash the artist. And of course, you can continue to listen to us on the platforms that you choose from Apple Podcasts to Spotify to GeoSavan to Google Podcast. Everything is mentioned in the description. And and of course, you can reach us uh, on the WhatsApp number and our email ID. I'm your host, Suchita, and I'm looking forward to a wonderful journey ahead with all of you. Episode 89 of our podcast, The Artist, has a great conversation about the three masters of cinema, Hitchcock, Godard, and Kiarostomy. And I'm so fortunate to be bringing this episode number 89 to you with the prominent film critic and film scholar, Sir David Sterrett. David Sterrett is a film critic, author, teacher, and scholar. He is most notable for his work on Alfred Hitchcock and Jean-Luc Godard. He has a PhD in cinema studies from New York University and was under until 2015 chair of the National Society of Film Critics for 10 years. His writings on film and film culture have appeared in numerous publications including the New York Times, Movie Maker, The Huffington Post, Senses of Cinema, Cineaste, Film Comment, Film Quarterly and a lot more. The 15 books that he has authored include volumes on the film and culture of the 1950s, The Beat Generation, French New Wave, the films of Alfred Hitchcock, Clint Eastwood, Robert Altman, Spike Lee and Terry Gilliam. Find him on his website davidjsterrett.com. Thank you for joining in the artist podcast and being part of this conversation and taking out time from your busy schedule. It's such an honor to have you on our podcast because you've written this amazing book, The Films of uh, Alfred Hitchcock. When we say Hitchcockian, what are a couple of words that come to your mind? Well, the most obvious word, uh, and the one that probably comes to almost everybody's mind, uh, is sus- suspense. Um, Alfred Hitchcock uh, was, you know, he, he, he was very fond of the label Master of Suspense, and he was in, indeed uh, one of the great practitioners of the suspense film. Uh, he generated suspense in all kinds of different ways in all kinds of different movies, and the fact that he almost always made suspense films doesn't mean that his movies had any particular sameness to them. They were tremendously varied in their subjects and their storylines and so forth, but suspense was always a constant. One other thing which which I would maybe mention, since you asked for a couple of words, uh, the idea of what he called pure cinema. When he talked about pure cinema, what he usually meant, in fact, pretty much I think what he always meant, was uh, uh, visual cinema. 
cinema that uh, that that operated on primarily a visual level. Uh, of course, there are words and there is music and you know dialogue and all of that in the movies. But he saw cinema as uh, as as primarily a visual medium, and 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 when he talked about pure cinema, he meant the kind of thing that he he, he thought he accomplished best, I think, in Psycho, uh, the ability to uh, to to play on an audience's emotions with pure images. That's what he loved most. So I would say suspense and um, cinema based on images were, 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 are the main things that come to mind when I think of Hitchcock. And a couple of elements that Hitchcock used in his storytelling that stands out for you as a film critic. Well, I think that the main thing for me with Hitchcock is uh, what I just mentioned about his own view of his of, of his movies. Uh, the fact that they are so they operate so brilliantly on a visual level. Again, uh, he had uh, some of the ex most extraordinary music tracks in all of cinema. I think, especially of Bernard Herrmann's music scores yeah. for Vertigo and Psycho. That's really important. Uh, he had really good screenwriters a lot of the time, and they wrote terrific dialogue for him but what always stands out to me are the uh, just the extraordinary visual the, the extraordinary visual virtuosity that he had i'll also mention that another thing hitchcock was very proud of uh, was his his ability to use use editing to use montage to put images together it's not just a, a question of having beautifully photographed images or uh, images that are really striking to the eye as important as that can be it's the way the images come together uh, they, they, Many years ago, uh, the, uh, the Film Society of Lincoln Center in New York had a tribute to, to, to Hitchcock. And uh, at one point in the little film that they put together uh, of, of clips from his work and so forth, uh, they showed uh, a scene from his, his great film, Dial M for Murder. It's not one of his greatest films, but it's a wonderful movie in which somebody gets murdered or killed with a pair of scissors. And Hitchcock followed this up by saying, the best way to do it is with scissors. And I think he not only was making a joke about the killing method in that particular film, he was also talking about cutting about cutting the film into pieces and putting them together so that the, the images just follow one another and come together with, with continuities and contrasts. That's what he, I think, valued very, very much in, in the movies. And that, that's another, another element. One of the, the great, probably the single greatest example of that in all of his work is the famous shower murder in Psycho. Uh, where we have, oh, something like 70 or 80 images in just a few seconds' time. Mm -hmm. And they show us so much that we overlook the fact that we haven't really seen anything at all. We haven't seen the actual killing take place. We've just gotten the impression that a horrible murder has taken place. That's the sort of thing that I think stands out more for me than anything else in Hitchcock's work. So do, do you have any favorite uh, filmmaker and the contemporary, the new filmmakers right now, uh, coming closest to Hitchcock. Well, interestingly, uh, the idea of, of of editing, of montage, of putting together images has become it, it's been it, it, it's become too much of the movies nowadays. <laughs> mm. uh, you know, it, it's interesting. Hitchcock made one movie, a movie back in the late 1940s called Rope, where there is virtually no editing at all. The whole movie yes. gives the illusion of being one continuous shot for about an hour and 20 minutes from beginning to end. And he never really repeated that experiment. He did something like it again a little bit later, and then he just left that behind. Nowadays, all that filmmakers want to do is to cut, cut, cut. 
And uh, what film scholars call the average shot length, the ASL, has become shorter and shorter. So that it's almost this anxiety that today's filmmakers have uh, to just cut as rapidly and as often as possible. Cut, cut, cut. A new thing mm-hmm. to look at every every split second. And that's something that Hitchcock was, was in a way a pioneer of, especially, say, in the, the psycho shower murder. But he never carried it to that extreme. And he always knew when he could let an image linger as well. So I would say that nowadays, in in terms of the fast cutting and the constant cutting, filmmakers have been too influenced by Hitchcock, uh, and he himself was more moderate about it and had more of a sense of proportion about it. So I would say, you know, to modern filmmakers like Steven Spielberg or Quentin Tarantino, hugely influenced by Hitchcock in all kinds of ways, mm. but I think I think they've taken some of his techniques a little bit too far. Right. So I read your piece uh, where you uh, mentioned that uh, Hitchcock, during his uh, younger days, visited Germany and he absorbed expressionism of Lang and Murnau and the surrealism of Dali and, of course, the innovative montages of Weizenstein. How much do you think that influenced his cinematic style and the language of cinema? Well, again, Hitchcock has been an, uh, probably the most influential single filmmaker who ever lived. Mm-hmm. Uh, his yeah. movies are so respected and so studied by other filmmakers, including just by people who love movies. Uh, but he himself was influenced. Uh, and in his early years, he was absolutely fascinated by the Soviet filmmakers like Eisenstein and Pudovkin. And that's where mm-hmm. he learned the real importance of cutting, of editing, of going from one shot to another in the most articulate way possible. He was also also worked a little bit in Germany as a very, very young beginning filmmaker. And there he did absorb the lessons of the great German expressionist filmmakers. And this came out in different ways over the years. So uh, in terms of the influence of the Soviet filmmakers uh, that he absorbed very much when he was still in his 20s and when they were still <laughs> practicing their art and, and, and newcomers on the scene, uh, we have mm-hmm. things like uh, oh, a lot of the, the, the sequences in North by Northwest, certainly the shower murder and psycho, all kinds of things like that. In terms of the influence of the German expressionists, it's a little bit less obvious and it comes up less frequently in Hitchcock's work, but maybe the best single example of that is a movie from the mid-1940s, Spellbound where mm-hmm. he really, really, he, he actually hired Salvador Dali, the great surrealist painter, wow. to design a, a, a dream sequence for that movie, uh, because that movie is all about psychoanalysis and the analysis of dreams and the wildness of dreams. And um, the, the, the sequence did not come out in the finished film exactly as he had hoped, because the producer of the movie thought it was too radical and, and, and also too expensive, and so cut the whole thing down. But there we have Hitchcock, I think, drawing very much on that influence of the uh, of, of, of the expressionist filmmakers of Germany in the 19-teens and the 1920s, and specifically of the kind of surrealism that helped grow out of that. Uh, so again, these are very important elements, and as I said, he was influenced as well as being such an influence on other filmmakers. When we talk about language of cinema, we talk about varied things. We talk about the way a director uses the camera, the way the film has been cut, what is the innovation there in terms of sound, in terms of every other thing, the performance, etc., etc. But as a film critic, when you talk about the language of cinema as a film critic and as a film scholar, a couple of things that you would like to say, this is something that stands out for me as a film critic when you talk about language of cinema. 
Yeah, it's a really fascinating question. Uh, and I have to say, you know, the, the, the great film critic and theorist, uh, André Bazin, uh, who yeah. was one of the, 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 the founders of the French New Wave through his ideas, uh, he, he used to say that cinema is basically two things at the same time. And I think he's completely right about this. On the one hand, cinema is a, a, a system of, of capturing and representing and reproducing in a lot of ways the real world. You take a moving picture of something and you are getting a very, very often, a very true image of that up on the screen. Of course, there's all kinds of ways you can alter it and all kinds of ways you can fake it. But basically, right. when you take a moving picture of something, you are getting a, a likeness of that something on the screen. At the same time, Bazin said, cinema is a language. And that means that once you have those images, well, first of all, you can choose how you are going to capture those images. Are you, are you going to film something from close or far away, from a high mm. angle or from a low angle, all that sort of thing. And then you can choose how how to put those images together through your editing and that is crucial and that gives you something that is very much like language it's very much like spoken language it has yeah. a syntax it has a certain order in which the signifiers appear uh, when we make a sentence we are putting words together in a particular order when you make a film scene or sequence you're putting images together in a particular order and there's a real uh, a real real language like quality to that so uh, there's no the, the the most important thing I would say about this is that for me at least there's no rules there's no one way in which you have to do this uh, Hitchcock for example made one film without any editing it at all so to speak you know, pretty much uh, and then he made other movies where the editing is the most astonishing and brilliant characteristic of the movie and they're both I think very valid and useful ways of putting together what we can call film language I've also done a lot of writing about Jean-Luc Godard there was somebody who took the idea that what, what, what the conventional language of cinema was, the kind of language that communicates with everyday moviegoers and that almost anybody can just walk in and see a movie and understand it without even thinking about it very much. And Godard took that and turned it apart and took it apart and turned it upside down and shook it up and put it back together again in new ways, mm. inventing what's really, in a way, a whole new language of cinema. So lang cinema is like a language in many ways. Uh, you, you are putting together images the same way in language. You put together words and sentences and paragraphs. But I don't think there are any rules for that any more than there are rules in, 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 in writing. There's good ways of doing it and there's bad ways of doing it. Mm. But whether you are doing it well or not... Yeah. Is, 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 is a reflection of, of how capable you are as an artist. Yes, yes, beautiful, beautiful. So Hitchcock had a huge influence on French cinema with the likes of Truffaut and Chabrol and Truffaut's entire conversations with Hitchcock. The tapes are there available on the internet. And when you watch Chabrol, his entire treatments, they're very much influenced by Hitchcock. They're very Hitchcockian. This article that you wrote about how Asian filmmakers like Wong Kar Wai are influenced by Hitchcock as well. So would you like to sort of point out a couple of uh, elements in, say, for example, in Wong Kar Wai that were influenced by Hitchcock? Well... Sometimes Wong Kar Wai likes to create uh, suspense in his movies. I wouldn't call him a, a suspense specialist, but there are certainly times when he creates a good sense of, of, of tension and suspense in his movies. But also I would come back again, again to editing. Wong Kar Wai 
loves to edit. He loves to put together images uh, in very energetic and sometimes very quirky ways. And you know, he's I wouldn't call him particularly a Hitchcockian filmmaker, but I think that probably at least in some parts of his practice, he has been directly influenced by Hitchcock. And certainly that general tendency to love, love the act of editing and to love the kind of energy and expression that you can get from editing, I would say that's maybe the, to speak specifically of Wong Kar Wai, maybe the, the most specific thing that he inherited from Hitchcock. Right. So what is your favorite Hitchcock film? Well, my favorite Hitchcock film, uh, I have different answers to that. I think that probably the most profound of them all uh, is probably Vertigo, uh, which is just an astonishingly great film, and I never get tired of looking at it. And every time I think I've seen it enough for one lifetime, then some reason I look at it again, and it just astounds me all over again. On the other hand, uh, I would say that, and, and by the way, most of my favorite Hitchcock films, probably all of them come from the 1950s, which I think was his greatest era. Uh, probably Psycho, though, is the most fun of his movies. And it also, for a movie with a what seems like a kind of an exploitation title like Psycho, it's yeah. also, also a movie which is quite profound. I think it's kind mm -hmm. of endless in, in, in the kind of interpretation and wisdom that you can find uh, in its many different meanings that are layered one upon another. And I'll just mention one more from that same exact period of Hitchcock's career, which is North by Northwest, which is just such fun. I don't think he ever made a movie which is more fun, more sheerly enjoyable to look at. So maybe I would name those three movies all from just one very brief period in Hitchcock's career. You wrote books on Godard and of course you've spent considerable amount of time with him as well. So when we, when we say Godard or his films, besides the French new wave that comes to our mind, a couple of things that comes to your mind. Well... Uh, like Hitchcock, uh, the French mm. New Wave filmmakers, uh, and I mm. always name five as the kind of, there, there's others who can be added, but I always name five as the main members of the group. Jean-Luc Godard, Francois Truffaut, Claude Chabrol, Eric Romer, Jacques Rivette. Those are the core members and the key yeah. members of the French New Wave. Other tremendously great filmmakers like Agnès Varda and Alain René are also there, but they're a little bit separate. But those right. th those filmmakers, uh, like Hitchcock, they have been hugely influential on almost everything that has come after them. Uh, they are no longer looked at, I think, as much as they used to be by, by ordinary moviegoers, but they're tremendously important. And what they all did, each one of those five in a different way, was to, as I said earlier about Godard, was to, to, to take apart the language of cinema, to take apart the elements of cinema that we're all familiar with and that have existed since pretty early days of cinema, certainly since, oh, about since the time that D.W. Griffith was coming along in the middle of the, of the 19-teens, uh, to take that language of cinema, which is so accessible to everybody, and to explore it and to, 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 to try to put, put its ingredients together in new ways. And they did this with varying degrees of, of, uh, of radicalness. Uh, Francois mm -hmm. Truffaut, for example, started by making some films which are really just just enormously innovative in all kinds of ways. Films like The 400 Blows and Jules and Jim. And then as time went by, he became more classical as a filmmaker, uh, less daring in some ways. But I think was, he remained an extremely brilliant filmmaker. But he started out as a radical and then he became a little bit more of a populist as he went along. Jean-Luc Godard had kind of the opposite trajectory. Uh, he mm -hmm. started out, his first feature to be released was a movie called Breathless, uh, which is mm -hmm. a hugely influential movie and 
all kinds of ways in which people are still looking at and studying and learning from. Uh, and it's very radical in some ways, but it, it tells a story. It has a beginning and a middle and an end. Uh, and it's about a gangster and it's kind of a takeoff on the American uh, gangster movie. Because uh, uh, like Truffaut and like all the new wave filmmakers, Godard was hugely influenced by Hollywood cinema. So it's a gangster movie and it tells a story with a beginning, a middle and an end. But it's full of these jump cuts. There's one time when a couple are driving along in a car and there's something like a half a dozen different shots within about two seconds. And there's no reason for any of those cuts from one shot to another. They're just there, mm -hmm. for, they're just there for energy and for texture. Uh, and they, they give the movie a huge energy and a really distinctive texture, unlike anything else that had ever been before that. And there are other things like that in, in Breathless as well. So Godard started out very innovative and in some ways radical. And then he became more innovative and more radical as he went along. There was a time uh, in his career when he didn't even want to make movies that would be commercial in any way at all. It was during his radical Maoist, socialist, communist phase. And he wanted to, to so completely remove himself from mainstream cinema that he wanted to make movies that, that wouldn't and even couldn't be shown in regular movie theaters. And of course, nobody wanted to see them. So eventually he came back to what he called regular movie making again, but it wasn't regular and it wasn't normal, so to speak. It was tremendously radical. And that's where he's been in the decades since then. He makes movies which, unlike Hitchcock's films, which can be studied endlessly by scholars and critics and can also just be enjoyed by casual Saturday night moviegoers, Godard's mm -hmm. films, at least after his first few movies, are not like that. You really have to commit yourself. You have to turn on your mind. You have to watch and think very, very attentively in order to grasp what his movies are doing at all. But they're no less important for that. In fact, they're all the more important for that because Godard has turned into a, a true intellectual among movie makers. His movies are, are totally audiovisual works of art. Their use of imagery and sound is just astonishingly great, but they're also intellectual exercises and they demand a lot of thought. So I would say, you know, that's one place where, where, where the Godard differs from the other new wave filmmakers because their movies as challenging as they can be are usually pretty accessible to mainstream audiences. Godard's films for the most part are not. Right. And so because you have met Godard, do you see a couple of things that strikes you about the filmmaker and about his films? Oh, yeah, that's a really, really interesting question that I hadn't really thought about before. But <laughs> I will say, uh, you know, having talked to Godard, yeah, I mean, he's a cantankerous guy. He can be a difficult guy, but he really, mm -hmm. I think, does try to communicate his ideas, try to communicate what he's doing. And certainly he is a presence in many of his films. He appears on the screen. He appears even more on the soundtrack. He really, I think, wants to communicate with audiences. But to communicate does not mean to comprehend Compromise. So whereas when you talk to Godard, yeah, he's communicating, he's talking, he's answering the questions, he's being as communicative as he can. At the same time, he's a trickster and he's playing sort of games with you. Mm. And I think he's doing the same thing in a lot of his movies. Uh, he, he, 
I'll tell a little anecdote that doesn't involve my talking with him, but it, I think it's revealing about him. Uh, he appeared once, possibly more than once, but I'm thinking of one particular appearance on a very popular late night American TV talk show, The Dick Cavett Show. And Dick Cavett is answering, asking him these questions. And, you know, it's for mainstream audiences. And Godard is giving these answers, which, as I said before, he's playing games. He's being mm -hmm. a trickster. He's saying things that seem to make sense, but not quite in the way you expect it. And then maybe this thing doesn't really make sense at all. And he's sort of having little jokes here and there. And then Dick Cavett asks him about mm -hmm. Jerry Lewis. Why is it that the French movie makers and the French critics love this crazy American comic, Jerry Lewis, so much? And Godard gets really serious and gives a really serious, totally comprehensible answer. No tricks, no games. Because <laughs> this is something where he really, he's, he's being a critic now, not just a filmmaker. And he mm -hmm. really wants to communicate. And then he goes back to being his trickster self and playing his games again with the questioner and with the audience. So I would say, actually, I see here no gap between Godard the person and Godard the filmmaker. In both areas, he's intensely serious, but he's also playing games. He's an artist as well as an intellectual, whereas the intellectual part of him wants to understand new things that cinema can do and somehow get audiences to appreciate that along with him. At the same time, uh, he, he is an artist who is working on a lot of intuitive, instinctive levels, who maybe couldn't himself articulate reasons for everything that he does. So I think that both the person and the, the artist are, are the same in that respect. Uh, he's really thinking, he really wants to communicate, but at the same time, he's not going to limit himself, either as a thinker or as an artist, to the things that you can do with logic and reason. He also wants to go beyond that to realms of instinct and intuition that maybe can't be put into precise words all that easily. Right. So you must have met so many directors, so many filmmakers, you would have sat and discussed. Do you see this quality of being a trickster, as you mentioned, of Godard, quite prominent with filmmakers? Oh, I suppose to some extent it's probably <laughs> there in a lot of them. I'm not sure I'd want to generalize about whether most of them are, are tricksters like Godard or most of them are, are really serious and just want to tell you what they think. Uh, I think that in order to be an artist on some level, you have to be very much in touch with those things I mentioned, instincts and intuitions and things yes. that are not completely matters of logic and reason and rationality. Uh, so I think all good filmmakers have to be on that level to some extent, but to what degree they indulge that part of themselves. I think that varies from one filmmaker to another. It certainly varied even within the French New Wave. Again, Godard was willing to be radically intuitive and to go completely beyond what mainstream audiences are ready for, and he's paid a price for that. He's always mm. kind of been on the fringes of, of world cinema in certain ways, hugely influential, but at the same time not seen and appreciated by huge numbers of viewers, whereas somebody like Truffaut, I think, had much more of an interest in being accessible and speaking a more conventional language of cinema, although speaking it brilliantly. So I read your brilliant piece on Kiarostomy, uh, one of my favorite filmmakers. And uh, I just wanted to understand from your perspective, being an American and being an American critic, how do you see Kiarostomy's films? Well, uh, <laughs> uh, I am an American. Uh, I, I plead guilty to that. Uh, and uh, 
on the other hand, uh, you know, like uh, I hope all thoughtful film people, uh, I have a hearty appreciation from films from every part of the world. And of course, Karastami uh, came of age as a filmmaker at a time when there was a real renaissance going on in specifically in Iranian cinema. And how do these things happen? I don't think anybody can say for sure. There are enormous numbers of reasons why things like this come about, and they're very hard to to, to, to explain in, in, in neat formulas. But we had it with the French New Wave uh, in the 1960s, the astonishing new and hugely influential and hugely brilliant things that they accomplished. And we had things like the Kino that gave us uh, Herzog and Fassbinder and Schlondorf and people like that in Germany. And we had the British New Wave that gave us people like Carol Rice and, and, and Tony Richardson. So these new waves that seem to come up, recently there's been a great wave, new wave of, 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 of Romanian cinema. So Karastami came uh, again of, of, of artistic age at a time when there was this marvelous thing happening in Iranian cinema. And again, there it's impossible to say exactly why there was such a sudden flowering of brilliance among any number of Iranian filmmakers. One of the reasons, I think, has to do with the fact that there was a tremendous amount of censorship of Iranian film. And that forced the filmmakers, and I don't use that word lightly, forced them to be more inventive in the way that they were going to com communicate with their audiences. Among other things, there was a great flowering of movies about children. Because when you make movies about children, uh, first of all, you're making a movie about children. They're not going to do or say particularly controversial things. But you can then be allegorical. You can get across your messages indirectly through stories about people who are not, not perceived by the, the government authorities as being threatening. So that's maybe one reason why uh, people like Kiarostami, he was one of these filmmakers who, who in Iran who made movies about children, but more broadly, not just making movies about children, but the idea of having to be indirect, having to say things indirectly. Uh, you mentioned Kislavsky before. Uh, he mm -hmm. said that he changed from making mainly documentaries to making mainly fiction because it was easier to get his messages across in fiction because you could be indirect and you could suggest things and not get in trouble with the government. So uh, uh, mm -hmm. something similar, I think, happened in Iranian film around the time that Kiarostami was coming up and making his early films. Uh, you had to be indirect. You had to be subtle. You had to think of new ways of doing things. Uh, the, the great American writer Philip Roth once said something about Eastern Europe in this regard. He said, over there, there, is tre there are tremendous barriers to everything, and artists are doing everything they can. In America, there's no barriers. You can say anything you want, and nobody's saying anything interesting. So, in a way, it's kind of that way, I think. So, Kiarostami came along at a time at a number of other Iranian filmmakers at the same time, Mahmoudov and Majidi and some others, mm -hmm. at a time when they had to be subtle, they had to do things in new ways, or else they wouldn't be able to continue working at all. So, beyond that, Kiarostami, I think, was, because unfortunately he is gone now, a profoundly great artist. And he not only was interested in the kind of subtlety and indirection and obliqueness that we associate with some kinds of great artists, but he also just had a tremendous visual sense, tremendous sense of how to combine words and images. And he had really 
in the longest conversation I ever had with Karastami, he said something which has remained with me, I think of it so often, ever since. Uh, the idea that my favorite uh, Karastami film is The Wind Will Carry Us. And in that movie, I forget the exact number, but there's any number of characters who you never see. You hear them talked about or you hear their voices on the soundtrack, but you never actually see them. And that is exactly the kind of, it's sort of a key to his whole filmmaking practice. The idea of, of showing us a lot of things, but suggesting even more things. Uh, making us put our own imaginations to work when we watch the movie. Uh, he told me that uh, when you have a whole audience watching an easy film, let's say a standard formulaic Hollywood film, you have a whole audience watching that together, and it's kind of like they're filling in a crossword puzzle. And when they all come out, they've all got the same crossword puzzle filled in. Some people like the movie a little more than others. Some dislike a little bit more than others. They have different opinions about this scene or that character. But basically, they all have the same thing in their minds. Cherastami wanted to avoid that. He wanted every person who watched one of his movies to have a different movie going on in their mind. And that's why, although he showed many things, he suggested even more things so that we would each come out with our own movie in our mind. And among other things, that makes the conversation after the movie more fascinating than it otherwise could possibly be, because everybody's got a different take on the same movie. And that, I think, is, 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 was really courageous of him to, to try to go in that direction and pursue it as far as he did. Oh, wow, lovely, lovely, lovely. So do you see a point of confluence between the three masters? Do you see Hitchcock, Goddard and Kiros to me merge meeting at some point? Oh my gosh! Uh, I think I think it's a little bit harder to put Karastami into that into that uh, into that category. Uh, I'm sure that he loved Hitchcock, and I'm sure that he had tremendous respect for Godard. Maybe loved Godard as well. But he's a different kind of filmmaker. He, he's much more much more meditative filmmaker. The average Karastami movie, you watch it, it takes its time. <clears throat> you, you let it sink in. You think about it while it's happening, as well as after it's happening. Uh, I would say that with Hitchcock, the entertainment level of his films is so strong. That is, he is all, well, almost always able to engage just our emotions so powerfully uh, with his stories, with their tremendous psychological power, as well as their tremendous suspense element. That is a different kind of a thing from what Kiarostami was trying to accomplish. Some of Kiarostami's films are enormously entertaining, yes, including The Wind Will Carry Us. But again, his films are more contemplative, more meditative. Godard, on the other hand, after his early films, and even starting then, he invented his own kind of film language. So he was hugely influenced by Hitchcock, I would say primarily in his desire to, uh, to, to, to use editing as a way of ordering the world according to his own personal vision. Uh, you know, one of Godard's masterworks, maybe his most important of all of his works, is a long video series called Histoire du Cinema, meaning histories of cinema or stories of cinema. And in that, uh, he has a whole episode uh, devoted to, go to, to Hitchcock, uh, which he calls the control of the universe. And Hitchcock, 
himself, in a very conscious way, was obsessed with the sense of control he had over his films. Every moment in every one of his films is calculated. And for some people, that's a, a negative thing. Some people feel mm -hmm. that Hitchcock's films are, are too, too, too manipulated moment to moment. I disagree. I, 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 I love that. I think that one of the things that art is, is manipulation, not in all art, but in much art. So yeah, uh, I think that there's no problem with that at all. But, uh, but Hitchcock was always interested in controlling, even to the fact that Hitchcock did his little cameo appearances in his own movies. He actually wanted to be on the screen as if to remind the audience that there is a controlling hand behind all of this and it is my hand, I am the director. So Hitch, I think that Godard had an equal sense of wanting to control uh, the universe through his films and control every one of his films as it exists uh, in front of its audiences. But he was much more, uh, much more unconventional. Well, rat, that's too mild a word. Much more radical in the way he wanted to control things, in the kinds of controls he wanted to exercise. He wanted to I'll use a metaphor I used earlier. I'll use it again. He wanted to sort of take things apart, shake them up, and then put them back together in a new order. And that's something that Hitchcock was not interested in doing. And I think Karastami, in a way, did that, but in very different ways. Uh, Godard is the one who really wants to, 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 to change film language to its core in different ways with each successive film. So I think that, you know, it's very hard to put those three people into one category. They're all, mm -hmm. they're all similar in that they're all audiovisual artists who engage with narrative in one way or another, but they're all radically different in almost every other way. Right, right. Beautiful. So I I was trying to read a piece of yours, which is about which was about film festivals then and now, and that piece never opened. It's been removed. So just to get your perspective on, because you have been on the jury of film festivals, do you see a radical transformation in the direction or in which film festivals are going? Uh, at that time and now, uh, do you see a change in the aesthetics and the way they are uh, choosing or projecting film slash cinema? Well, that's a huge question. Yeah. <laughs> I've been involved with film festivals in different ways uh, for many, many, many a long year. For a lot of years, I was on the selection committee of the New York Film Festival at Lincoln Center. I have, as you mentioned, I've been on juries uh, in film festivals everywhere from uh, Moscow and Vienna to Tribeca in New York, uh, all different kinds of places. So I've had a lot of experience with film festivals. And, you know, in some ways, they're very easy to generalize about. Uh, they all show a lot of movies. <laughs> you know, that's what they do. In other ways, though, they're very, very hard to generalize about because there are so many different kinds. You have, for example, uh, and I, I don't mean this to be definitive examples, but you have a festival like the Toronto International Film Festival, which is huge, overstuffed, every possible kind of movie, from the radical avant-garde to the totally Hollywood mainstream. And then you have a festival like the New York Film Festival, which is much more selective and presents a much smaller number of films and which doesn't give prizes. The idea is simply to be included in that festival makes you a winner. 
So there's all kinds of differences in those ways, and there always have been among different festivals. Then we are now talking in the age of the coronavirus pandemic, which has radically changed things over the past couple of years. And some film festivals, including the New York Film Festivals, uh, went online for a while. And that is to say, you could see their movies uh, on on the Internet. You could watch them at home in your own living room. Uh, And now they're in the process generally of going back to being in-person festivals again. Uh, And I personally saw a lot of advantages to that online format. Uh, For one thing, I could now look at I don't live in New York anymore. And I could now look at a whole lot of movies from the New York Film Festival without having to travel to New York all the time. So that was very convenient for me. And I have a nice big screen. I'm fortunate in that regard. So, you know, I, I looked at some, you know, quite a number of movies from that festival at home. And I, I am hoping that as uh, the movies come back to being in-person experiences again, that the online version of it does not completely go away. That said, uh, I do think that this recent experiment, forced experiment with online movie going uh, is probably over. That is online film festivals and that they're going to go back to being mainly in-person events. And that's OK, too. And the reason for that is. Film festivals are supposed to be festivals, and they're supposed to be places where a lot of people come together to celebrate the art of film. And so you have critics, and you have ordinary moviegoers, and you have people who make films, and people who distribute films, and people who exhibit films, and they all come together to celebrate the art of cinema together in one place, and that's something that online experiences can never quite duplicate. So I guess that I, what I'm hoping for the future uh, is that film festivals, as they come back on, in person, and I'm, I'm glad they are, and I hope they're able to continue to, uh, I hope that a certain amount, though, of online sharing goes on, because that makes movies much more accessible to a much wider audiences when they're still fresh and new. And do you see any change in terms of the aesthetics of filmmaking uh, then and now? Well, uh, sure. I mean, if, uh, first of all, if film festivals go- have been around for many, many decades. So uh, the, the whole idea that if you go to a film festival now, you're likely to see most of the movies projected digitally. That technology did not exist mm. just a handful of decades ago. So that kind of thing is very new. You're also going to see very, very large numbers of movies, probably the great majority of movies that were filmed digitally as well. And these are very important uh, changes that have taken place in the technology of film and the, the finance as a film and all of that. So these things have changed radically. As for the actual aesthetics of film, one of the things that most festivals, including very selective ones like New York and also certainly the great big huge ones like Toronto, uh, one thing that these uh, festivals really try to do is to present a good broad spectrum of different kinds of cinema from the mainstream to the uh, the very the very artistic and avant well I shouldn't say artistic because mainstream films can be hugely artistic but the more avant-garde the more experimental kinds of stuff so you know good festivals have always run a very wide gamut of different kinds of cinema so for that very reason you really can't generalize about changes in mm. aesthetics yes there's much more digital filmmaking and much more digital projection and so forth and so on and there's more or now viewing things online rather than actually sitting in a movie theater. But by and large, the aesthetics of cinema, you know, there's, there's still today as back in the 1920s. On the one hand, you've got very radical, non-narrative, experimental cinema. And on the other hand, you have movies that just want to please wide audiences. And, you know, good festivals have always tried to present samplings from that whole range of different kinds of cinema experience. And I think that has remained constant. Right. 
And so lastly, do you see uh, film criticism as a profession getting influenced by the changing times? That is the times that, of course, the digital times, but also the times where where we are influenced a lot by the content that's out there on the Internet, like your TikTok videos are there, social media is there. Um, and any advice to our film critics listening to the podcast as well? Well, there have <laughs> certainly been changes uh, in the uh, in, in in the world of film criticism. Uh, mm -hmm. I'll tell you, uh, I was for ten years the chair of the National Society of Film Critics in America, mm -hmm. and we used to joke during that period. Uh, this went from about 1995 to about 2005, uh, and um, I uh, we used to joke that we should call ourselves the National Society of Former Film Critics because people were losing. <laughs> their jobs all over the place. Uh, it was just a terrible, terrible time. Uh, critics who, by the way, I think I gave the wrong years for when I was the chair, but it doesn't really matter. The point is during sure. that time, uh, newspapers in America were getting rid of their film critics. Newspaper chains were saying, you know, we have 10 different newspapers in different parts of the country. Why should we have local film critics for each one of those papers? Let's have one film critic who appears in all of them. So there were so many people losing jobs and there was just such a, a, a shaking out uh, in, 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 in the field. At the same time, though, uh, really serious publications really tried to keep up really serious film criticism, and it never died. And I think to some extent it's coming back now as a kind of absence is being, is being lost. So there is, what I'm trying to say here is that there is still, and always has been, long-form serious film criticism in serious newspapers and magazines and other periodicals, as well as various outlets on the web. Now, also we have, <laughs> we have this huge efflorescence, this gigantic outpouring of what is sometimes real film criticism and sometimes it's not real film criticism on the internet because anybody, as we know, can put anything they want onto the internet. It used to be that they were gatekeepers. There were good gatekeepers and bad gatekeepers. There were good publications and bad publications. There were publications that tried to maintain high standards. There were publications that didn't care anything at all about high standards. That's always existed. But now in the internet, as I say, there, well, there are no gatekeepers. Uh, you have to really pick and choose. You can find things on the internet, and I see them all the time, which are absolutely idiotic in my mind, and which are so badly written and so ungrammatical and misspelled that I think that they're objectively bad. And there they are, right up there, and you can find them just as easily as you can find the really serious stuff. So that's been a huge change. When people come to me, and they have done this over the years, and say, I would really like to be a film critic, I really care about movies, I would like to say serious, thoughtful things about movies, what should I do? What I always say is I steer people directly to the World Wide Web. And I say, start yourself a website or try to get onto other people's websites and put your stuff up there so that we can all see it and then you can steer it to us, you can get in touch with us, you can say, please look at my article about such and such, please look at my review about so and so and do that so that we can see it and we can judge it. And if you're good, you have a good chance of rising up so that everybody, well, so that a lot of people will start recognizing that you are a good, thoughtful thinking thinker about films. So that's what I always say now is go to the web, put stuff up there. Now, if you can get a job at some point for a print publication, by all means do so. But right now I do think that the wave of the future is not all internet, but it's primarily internet. Uh, 
And uh, the same thing may prove to be true in the long run for film festivals as well. Not all internet, but a lot of internet stuff. So when people say now, where should I look for, for good criticism? I say, first of all, look to good, thoughtful print publications. And then secondly, look for good, thoughtful internet outlets, because there's good stuff all over the place. The trick is to find that good stuff in the middle of the haystack of bad stuff <laughs> that's also up there right alongside it, especially on the internet. Wow. All right. Great. Thank you so much, sir. I hope you have a great day. And uh, that's it. We are midnight, almost touching midnight here. So thank you so much, sir. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure to be with you, Sushita. Wow, I thoroughly enjoyed this episode with three of my favorite filmmakers, of course, Hitchcock, Godard, and Kimos to me. And I hope you guys enjoyed it too. And I'm going to go back and still relish it a little bit more while you guys take care of yourself. And I'm going to leave you with this very interesting quote I found this week, which is, if it's out of your hands, it deserves freedom from your mind too. Take care and have a great weekend. 